We're going to be continuing our series in 1 Corinthians this morning and focus in a little bit more clearly on the continuation of Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 12 through 20. Now, the last time I was with you speaking, teaching, uh, we had a shortened sermon in order to accommodate the ministry of our missionaries. And so that was a, a wonderful time to connect with them and hear their story of what they're doing there in a country that shall not be named. But today we're going to be continuing Paul's argument. And so if you'd like to stand for the reading of God's word in this extended passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 12, not just through 14, but all the way through to verse 20. Paul writes in verse 14, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach, and the stomach for foods. But God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own. For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Let us pray. Lord, open our eyes to see the wonderful truths in your word. And grant to us, Lord, the wisdom to see how one truth relates to another in your purposes. So that we come away with a clear understanding of how we stand before you by grace and are no longer under the law and yet we pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Lord help us to see how these things relate to one another in your purposes so that we might become the bride of Christ that you died to redeem. And we give you all the glory and all the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, before we dive into Paul's teaching in this passage, I want to go to the Gospel of Matthew for a moment and ask the question, was Jesus unrealistic concerning our ability to cease 
from sexual immorality. Now, I ask this question in light of Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27 through 30, where Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. Now, he's quoting one of the Ten Commandments. Okay, so this is very serious. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. So in answer to the question, is Jesus being unrealistic concerning the ability to cease from committing sexual immorality? He's just raised the bar. Now it's not just a matter of, of an action, but rather a thought, a look, and you're guilty. So is he unrealistic? The answer is no. The law of God is just as demanding as ever. In fact, he tells us prior to this in the same sermon that if anyone teaches that this law is no longer to be followed and honored, that he's least in the kingdom of God. It's very serious. So are we doing that? Is Paul doing that when he tells us all things are profitable, or all things are permissible, all things are lawful? And the reason that these two passages can, can fit together perfectly is that Jesus is making the law all the more terrifying. And he's snatching away from everyone any hope of keeping the law perfectly. And so if our hope is in our ability to keep the law, we have just lost that hope. As Jesus tells us, if you look at a woman with lust, you have committed adultery with her in your heart, and you stand guilty before God. So why would Jesus do that? The answer is to drive us to his gospel where because of his payment of his own blood upon the cross we are no longer under the law the law is still there and it is still in force for those who are under the law and that's why paul tells us in galatians if you are led by the spirit you are not under the law. Our only rescue from the fierce wrath of God against those who offend his law is the blood of Jesus Christ. That is our only hope. Now, does that leave us now with license to sin? 
That's what Paul's dealing with in this passage. He's dealing with the importance of the statement that all things are possible or permissible, but not all things are profitable. If God is dead, then all things are permissible. Where does that come from? The brothers Karmazov, in, their no, in the book, the novel, The Brothers, <laughs> I don't know how to pronounce that word. Karmazov. Now here's another one. Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky. It's so good to have a doctor in the audience here. Famously declared, if God is dead, all things are permissible. Kind of an echo of Paul, isn't it? And uh, Dostoevsky was a Christian. And his, his novel was intended to point the Russian people and people around the world back to God. But the rapid erosion of all moral standards in the 20th century was partly due to this idea that God is dead. Nietzsche famously made that pronouncement. It was on the cover of Time, Manage, uh, Time Magazine at one uh, point. Uh, and so this idea, God is dead. So if God is dead, then all things are permissible. And we see people throwing off all restraint. But what if, what if only the God of eternal judgment and condemnation was gone? Not God entirely, but just that aspect of God who is the judge and the, the one who condemns those who are guilty of sin, what if that aspect of God was no longer there because it has been satisfied by the sacrifice of his son Jesus on the cross? And now only the consequences of one's sins and the discipline of one's heavenly father remain. Now, I would propose to you that that is the situation we find ourselves in today. When we have come to Christ and applied the blood of Christ to cover our sins, we are therefore now no longer under any condemnation as we walk in the Spirit rather than walking in the flesh. In that case, all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not helpful, that not all things are expedient, not all things are profitable, which is the passage we're looking at here today, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12. And so for those who are no longer under the law, as Paul puts it, while we are here, it is crucial to our living a life that is pleasing to our Heavenly Father and avoids the unprofitable consequences of God's loving discipline in our lives. You see, when you commit sin, especially the sin of sexual immorality, you bring upon yourself all kinds of consequences. It's a, the cost of that sin is very, very high. And yet it can be forgiven. It can be covered by the blood of Christ. You can live a life free of guilt and no longer under any condemnation. And yet the cost of that sin in your life 
not only in the physical sense in this life, but also in the eternal consequences, as we're going to see, are very real. And that is why Paul is taking such care in rebuking the sin of the Corinthians while being careful not to put them back under the law. Okay, this is the challenge Paul is facing. How do I explain to these Corinthians that sexual immorality is wrong, it's dumb, it's not worth it, without dragging them back under the law to where they're only obeying God because of the fear of his wrath, rather than because of their love for his holiness, his love for his wisdom, his love for his goodness. That's the challenge. And so we see again in Romans chapter 10 in verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. He is not the end of the law for wisdom's sake. There's still wisdom. Read the Ten Commandments. It's very wise to obey the Ten Commandments. But they are not a means of attaining righteousness for yourself before God. They are the... the Christ is the end of the law for righteousness' sake. Because only by the blood of Christ can we stand before a holy God. And yet it is not the end of the law for wisdom's sake, for society's sake, because those who honor God's law, not out of fear of judgment, but out of love for God's goodness and wisdom, that makes for a very, very sane and sound family, a sane and sound neighborhood, a sane and sound community. And so we benefit this, the, the law accomplishes these two things. It is a tutor to bring us to Christ. It is intended to, as we understand it correctly, terrify us to the point where we cast ourselves before the cross and cry out for mercy. But it continues to inform us as to what goodness and wisdom looks like in practice. So all things may be lawful, permissible, but not all things are helpful in fulfilling the purpose of God. And so we read again in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, all things are lawful unto me, but not all things are helpful. Not all things are expedient. And as we saw uh, last time, the word helpful or expedient in this verse 12 comes from the Greek some pharaoh, which means to make a profit, to be profitable. So all things are lawful, but not all things are worth what they cost. And so Paul warns us to avoid sexual immorality, to flee from it. God will forgive sexual immorality when we confess it and forsake it. Uh, his blood covers it, but in a more precise sense, it's already been forgiven, even prior to confession. Now this is one of those little evangelical things we've brought in, in addition to the Word of God, we've added to the Word of God. When Jesus died for us, he paid for our sins, past, present, and future. Now is it a good thing to confess our sins? Yes, confess your sins to one another that you may be healed. 
There's, there's power in confession. But we need to be careful we don't make that confession a work that is necessary in order for us to be forgiven or saved. And so we have these places in which God's word still applies, but it doesn't apply as a means of righteousness before God. That is taken care of entirely at the cross. We are saved by grace through faith alone, not of works, lest anyone should boast, but we have been created in Christ for good works, which he's prepared beforehand for us to walk in, and that's all very important, but those good works do not add to our justification. Remember, the courtroom scene is completely distinct from the family room scene. And now that we're in the family room of God, we're dealing with God as a heavenly father who instructs us and disciplines us in order that we might grow up and become pleasing to him as we prepare for the marriage supper of the lamb, as we corporately become the bride of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, sexual immorality, that's the topic. And Paul is going to make four points here. Number one, it corrupts God's purpose for creating us and redeeming us. That's the first argument against sexual immorality. The second argument is it harms us. It does us harm. We're going to look at the kind of harm it causes. Number three, he tells us it enslaves us. And we're not to become enslaved. And then finally, it defiles us as the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so these are the four arguments Paul makes in this passage on why we should not commit sexual immorality. So Paul is showing us how unprofitable sexual immorality is for the believer and how any sexual behavior outside of biblical marriage is going to be regretted. Now, let's be clear. God is not opposed to sexual intimacy within biblical marriage. In Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 18, we have uh, appropriate language to describe uh, how wonderful it is to be in a married relationship and to enjoy biblically uh, sound sexual involvement. Let your fountain be blessed. And that's referring to a, to a man. And rejoice with the wife of your youth. God intends for us to marry young. Have you ever noticed how many times it talks about the wife of your youth? And it's not gonna talking, ever talking about trading her in for a newer model, okay? We're, we're talking about getting married early and staying married for the rest of your life. That's God's plan and purpose. And it's good and wise. Now, now this is where the, the Old Testament, you know, their ways of describing things gets a little strange. But anyway, here we go. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times and always be enraptured with her love. You know, there's a description of, uh, of his, in Song of Solomon of his beloved, and, and when you put all the pieces together and draw it out as a picture, it's really strange, you know. She's got a neck like a tower, right? Uh, she's got uh, creatures representing different parts of her hair and her 
body and you put it all together and it's just a really weird picture. But that was the way of describing appropriately, keeping things, you know, uh, appropriate for all is a G, G uh, uh, rated G description of, of, of love between a husband and a wife. But uh, the Old Testament uses these analogies and metaphors, which we usually don't connect with very well, but they are what they are. Song of Solomon, how fair and how pleasant you are, O love, with your delights. This stature of yours is like a palm tree in your breast like its clusters. I said, I will go up the palm tree and I will take hold of its branches. Let now your breast be like clusters of the vine, the fragrance of your breath like apples, and the roof of your mouth like the best wine. Now, some of you may have thought that French kissing was discovered by the French, and that is not true. It's Jewish kissing, okay? Jewish kissing. How would this man know what the roof of her mouth tastes like unless, well, I will let you think that through. Now, the point here is God loves this kind of intimacy between a husband and a wife. And we should love it too. Now, next time I teach, I'll be teaching on the passage where Paul says that a man's body is not his own, it belongs to his wife, and his wife's body belongs to him, and they're to respond to one another in this uh, respect for one another's needs in this area of life. And I want all the young people to understand this is a part of your future. This is why you prepare to get married. You prepare to be able to take care of a wife and children if you're a man. You prepare to be the wife of a husband in the future. That's what your education is all about to be able to fulfill the responsibilities of adulthood, and in most cases that involves marriage and family, and it's good, it's wise, and it's God's, basically his default setting for humankind. Now there are those who are given a gift of being able to be celibate and content, and uh, that is a good thing, and Paul talks about that, we're gonna see that later, but for now I'll just point out, the default setting for the human race is married with kids. And uh, even the qualifications of an elder point to the assumption, the presumption that a man will be married and have kids. And if he is, and he does, then we're gonna look at those relationships to see whether or not he's biblically qualified to serve as an elder, shepherd, overseer in a local church. And so I, I quote these passages with the intent of making it clear God is not opposed to sexual intimacy within biblical marriage. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, I've quoted this before, marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. The marriage bed is undefiled. So you notice that the, that, that aspect of sexual intimacy is approved by God it's protected by God in the covenant of marriage, and it's intended to allow a couple to enjoy one another without any sense of guilt as they defer to one another in love. This is not a coercive thing. It's a, it's a yielding and a serving of one another in love. But the verse continues, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. So when you drag 
sexual intimacy outside of the protection of biblical marriage, which is a lifelong commitment to one another, it becomes unprofitable, okay? It becomes something you will regret. No matter how wonderful it may feel in the moment, it will be something you will regret and it will affect you not only in this life but also in the life to come. Now C.S. Lewis is one of my uh, go-to guys in terms of thinking deeply about uh, topics like this or any topic really. And on the subject of sex, he, I found this quote and I wanted to share it with you. He says, our warped natures, that's our fallen nature, the devils who tempt us, and all the contemporary propaganda for lust combine to make us feel that the desires we are resisting, as speaking as Christians, are so natural, so healthy, so, quote, reasonable, that it is almost perverse and abnormal to resist them. That's what the Corinthians were saying. Poster after poster, Film after film, novel after novel, associate the idea of sexual indulgence with the ideas of health, normalcy, youth, frankness, and good humor. Now that word frankness, we don't, here in the U.S., we don't use that word as often as they would in, in Great Britain, but to be frank was to just be openly honest. Okay, and so to have a relationship with your wife or your husband you need to be openly honest. You have to be frank with them. And good humor as well. He says, now this association is a lie. Like all powerful lies, it is based on a truth. The truth, acknowledged above in a previous part of this article, that sex in itself, apart from the excesses and obsessions that have grown up around it, is normal and healthy and all the rest of it. So he's already acknowledged that sexual intimacy is normal and healthy and, and reasonable and so on. The lie consists in the suggestion that any sexual act to which you are tempted at the moment is therefore also healthy and normal. So just because sex in marriage is healthy and normal doesn't mean that sex outside of marriage is healthy and normal. Now this, on any conceivable view, is quite, a, quite even and quite apart from Christianity, must be nonsense. Surrender to all our desires obviously leads to impotence, which is what happens to you when you indulge in pornography. I'll just announce that to everybody. You want to be impotent? Indulge in pornography, and you'll find yourself unable to perform in actual sexual relationships. Disease. There are sexually transmitted diseases out there that you can't get rid of with any medical treatment. You contract it and you'll have it for the rest of your life. Jealousies. You go out into a world and think that you can just enter engage in sex with anyone you please and you find out that there are people out there who lay claim on that person and their anger is real and murder happens people die because of infidelity 
lies, concealment, living in a secret life, and everything that is the reverse of health, humor, and frankness. Isn't that a wonderful quote? When you are talking to somebody about this subject, this would be a good one to point to. Sexual intimacy within marriage is healthy and good and right. Sexual relationships outside of marriage are going to lead to all kinds of problems. I do not need to worry about contracting a sexual transmitted disease. I am married to one woman for life. She and I are faithful to one another, and we are free from the fear of contracting any disease. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That is a wonderful thing. So as we saw, sex does more than merely satisfy a physical appetite. It addresses a deeper yearning. In 1 Corinthians 6.13, foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Paul is saying that there's a relationship between your body and your Lord that is real. It is spiritual and it is physical and it is intended to provide deep satisfaction just as food provides satisfaction to your stomach. The Lord provides satisfaction to these desires in your life. The Corinthians were saying that sex is just like eating, it's just a natural appetite, and so there's no moral aspect to it. And Paul is saying, no, the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And he's offering something far better. Now, fellowship with the Lord provides this deep satisfaction that we call joy. It's more than happiness. Happiness, in a sense, depends on what's happening at any given moment. We can have joy even in the midst of suffering. You can be going through difficulties that are indescribable and yet still have the joy of the Lord as your strength because you know that your hope does not lie in the circumstances uh, you are in in this world, that the Lord is your shepherd. Psalm 16 and verse 9, we read, Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. Your glory, by the way, is your tongue in this context. None of the other creatures in this world have the ability to speak. And the psalmist is saying, With my glory I rejoice. My flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Who are we referring to here? Who's speaking in this psalm? It's Christ. Christ, in, in this prophetic psalm, is saying to his Father, you will not leave me to corruption. This is a prophecy of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. You will show me the path of life, now notice this, and this is not only true for Christ, this is true for us. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. To be in the presence of the Lord, to be in the relationship with the Lord, is to experience this deep and satisfying joy 
that cannot be found in any other way in this world or the next. As we saw in Psalm 42 and verse 7, deep calls to deep at the roar of your water spouts. And the water spout is this, this tornado over the ocean or any body of water, and it's, it's drawing the water up into the sky. And this is one of the loudest sounds you'll ever hear in your lifetime, is a water spout. And the psalmist is saying, that's the way it is between you and the Lord. Your heart, the depths of your heart, and the depths of God's greatness are calling to one another in a fellowship that is so deep and so satisfying, and the only appropriate response is to roar. <laughs> Just the, oh, it's so good. God is so good. And so Paul begins his argument. Number one, sexual immorality corrupts God's purpose for our creation and our salvation. We read in verse 14, and God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. We, in this body, is the same body that will be transformed to be like his glorious body in the resurrection. And that is because we are united with him. We died with him, we were buried with him, and the baptismal waters represent that burial, and we raise with him to newness of life. We are a new creation in Christ. We now live in this world in, united, in, in, in a united fellowship with him and with one another as fellow members of his body. This physical body of yours, God's got big plans for it, okay? He's got big plans for it, and he doesn't want it to be corrupted by sexual immorality. And so Paul writes, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Now, if you're sitting here thinking, well, I don't, I don't go see prostitutes. I don't, I don't have any relationship with a harlot. Well, let's stop and think about what a prostitute really is. Prostitution is any time you use your sexual activity as a means of getting something that you want. You may prostitute yourself to be popular in school. You may prostitute yourself in order to have a, a relationship of marriage where there is no, no real love, just he's a rich guy. You know, what else do I want? I just want to be able to tap into his wealth. That's a prostitution relationship. You know, anytime you're using sex as a way to get something other than as an opportunity to give something in a relationship of love and care for one another is a prostitution mindset. And so the idea here of joining yourself to a harlot, it could be the, your neighbor's wife. She's not charging for her service, but there's a, a relationship there that is not the relationship that God intended for sexual behavior. And so Paul writes, certainly not. When we commit sexual immorality, we, we join Christ and with him, the entire body of Christ, to our immoral sexual partner in ways that corrupt God's holy purpose in creating us and redeeming us, saving us. So flee sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians 6.16 Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord 
is one spirit with him. So the relationship we're intended to have with the Lord and with our wife or with our husband is now being corrupted by bringing someone else into the, into the relationship. And it's just as real when it says joining one, to become one flesh, it's a very real thing. It's a spiritual thing and it's corrupting. And therefore, Paul writes that you are not to give into it. Sexual immorality corrupts the purpose of God in our salvation. Can it be forgiven? Yes, it can be forgiven. Is the blood of Christ sufficient to, to cover that sin? Yes, it is. But the consequences of that sin are real. It's not worth it. That's Paul's argument. It's not worth it. You're no longer under the law, but it's not worth it to give in to this temptation. Sexual immorality harms us. Now, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 12, and all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. And the word helpful there is the word profitable. Paul writes in verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. So what is Paul getting at here? Well, he may have Proverbs chapter 5, and there's a, a lot there. I'm only going to quote a few verses here. But Proverbs chapter 5 and verse uh, 11, it's all over. We'll look at verse 8. Do not go near the door of her house. Now, in the book of Proverbs, we have two prominent women. There is the, the uh, seductress, you know, the, the harlot, and she represents all aspects of foolishness. And then we have the Proverbs uh, 31 woman. She represents all aspects of wisdom. But just because they represent foolishness versus wisdom does not mean the description of what they're like is not real and practical. You go to Proverbs 31, there's a lot of practical wisdom there. You go to Proverbs chapter 5, there's a lot of practical foolishness there. And the point of the author is that you go to the prostitute and you are going to regret it. It says, lest aliens be filled with your wealth. It means you lose your financial uh, strength because of the relationships that result from your uh, committing this sin. And your labors go to the house of a foreigner. In the time that this was written, Israel is living as it is today, surrounded by nations that are given over to all kinds of uh, immorality. And, and much of it related to their religious beliefs and their idolatries. And so when he writes about the house of a foreigner, referring to relationships perhaps with uh, these temples that are just within walking distance. You can, you can go and, and indulge yourself in the house of a foreigner. And you mourn at last when your flesh and your body are consumed. This may be a reference to sexually transmitted diseases, which have been, have been have been around forever. Now, he continues, Proverbs 6, 26, For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread. You're going to be broke. You're going to be close to starving. And an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. Because of the addictions that result from this behavior, you find yourself spending all you have just to get that thrill. 
It reduces you to a crust of bread. Chapter 6, 32. Whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. And that's another, that's a nice way of saying you're an idiot. You're being stupid. He who does so destroys his own soul. Wounds and dishonor he will get. And his reproach will not be wiped away. It's not worth it. This sin causes great harm. Not just to the one who commits it, but also to others uh, in relationship to the one who commits it. Broken lives, broken marriages, children disillusioned, unable to enjoy marriage out of fear that their marriage will end like the marriage of their parents. God warns us, don't do it. Don't give in to it. Even though everything is, quote, lawful now, that we're no longer under the law of Moses, many things, including this, are not profitable in fulfilling God's purpose for saving us. Therefore, like Joseph, when he was uh, being approached by Potiphar's wife, you flee lust. You don't fight it. You get rid of this idea that you're going to stand and face it. Because when you do that, your body and your mind betray you. And instead of helping you fight temptation, they simply cheer on the enemy in hopes of satisfying a physical pleasure. So don't try to fight lust. Flee lust. Flee lust. That's everywhere in the Bible. Flee, 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 flee. It never says stand and fight sexual lust. Don't think you're smarter than God. Don't, don't think you're more spiritual than God. He says flee. Number three, sexual immorality enslaves us. <clears throat> we see this in the warning in, in chapter 6, verse 14b. I will not be brought under the power of any. I won't be brought into submission to anything or anyone. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. This is a present tense and continuing tense in the, in the Greek. It means right now you're experiencing the wrath of God if you're participating in ungodliness and unrighteousness. You're getting the consequences in this life of that. Therefore God also, it says, gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves and receiving in themselves the penalty of, which, of their error which was due. Now we can see this and oh, that's referring to homosexuality. It's not just homosexuality. Anytime we are indulging ourselves in ungodliness and unrighteousness, we're going to experience the consequences of that in this life. And one of those consequences is it enslaves us. It brings us into bondage. What Paul is describing here may be the addictive aspects of thrill-seeking in our sexual immorality. We can become hooked on our own hormones and endorphins, just like a heroin addict and an alcoholic. Once they've been satisfied for a moment, they can say, I'll never do that again. And they mean it. I'll never do that again. But then as the cycle of addiction turns, they find themselves wandering in the direction of where they can make that, that uh, purchase or 
or hookup or whatever it might be. You cannot indulge yourself in these ways without becoming a slave to these sins. There's many passages I could go to at this point, but for time's sake, I'm just going to keep moving on. Again, even though everything is lawful, now that we are no longer under the law of Moses, sin is clearly not profitable in fulfilling God's purpose in saving us. Therefore, again, flee sexual immorality. Number four, sexual immorality defiles the temple of the Holy Spirit. In verse 19, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? Now, this refers back to John chapter 2 and verse 19, where we see Jesus answering the religious leaders when they're challenging him. And he says, destroy this temple. They wanted a sign that he was the the Christ. And he says, okay, I'll give you a sign. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then the Jews said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But in verse 21 we read, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. You see, Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit without limit. And in being filled with the Holy Spirit, his body was the temple of God. And so he's referring in in this conversation with the Jews to the fact that when he is put to death, he will rise again in three days. And he did. So, Wherever God resides, that is his temple. And that means that if the spirit of truth dwells within you and will be in you, as Jesus says, you are the temple. You are a temple of the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And Jesus promises his disciples that the spirit of truth now dwells with you, but is eventually going to be in you. And so it happened. Jesus came and breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. On the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell upon the church and tongues of fire appeared over the heads of those who had been filled with the Holy Spirit that day. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells within you? Do you see how consistent these these images are that we are in fact the temple of the Holy Spirit. Recently there was a horrible desecration of a, of a you could at least call it a, a sacred site in New York City. The cathedral there, Saint, I believe it's St. Peter's Cathedral was the site of a funeral for a, uh, a transvestite sex worker, activist, uh, just an appalling resume. And he had died, and they had gotten permission from the uh, archdiocese there in New York to hold the funeral there in the Catholic Church. Now, this person was an avowed atheist. The ridiculousness of this story has no end. 
But they allowed it. They claimed that they were deceived, that they didn't realize what was going to happen. But all of the uh, supporters and friends and family and everybody showed up for this funeral and had an orgy in the sanctuary of that cathedral. Now, you couldn't find a more fitting illustration of the absurdity of joining the temple of the Holy Spirit to a prostitute. And that's what Paul is saying here. Don't do that. Now, there are many things wrong with the Catholic Church, okay? Beginning with the loss of the doctrine of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Catholic Church has got layer after layer of tradition by which to set aside the word of God and hold to their tradition. And it is a place where if you do not uh, go outside of the doctrine of the Catholic Church, you, you will not be saved. You must turn to the Protestant doctrine of the gospel in order to find forgiveness for your sins. So anyone who may be listening to this online, please, I plead with you, if you are, if you are in the Catholic Church, Jesus asked the question at one point, if the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? If what you think is light is actually darkness, you're double blind. You're so blind you won't even go looking for the truth because you think you've already got it. And if you're trapped in the false doctrine of the Catholic Church, I, I just encourage you, go outside of the teaching of the Catholic Church to what you find in the writings of Martin Luther and see the truth of the gospel there, that Jesus Christ died to save your soul and he is not being continuously sacrificed over and over again as your Mass uh, teaches you. Jesus died once for all time. And now our faith in that once-for-all sacrifice saves us entirely, and we are set free. And as Paul writes here, we are no longer under the law. So sexual immorality is to be fled from because we no longer own our own body. This is a final argument here in 1 Corinthians 6, 19b. You are not your own. Don't you know you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Now this last phrase, and in your spirit, which are God's, is not found in the best translations or the best manuscripts of the New Testament. But it's not a contradiction to anything in God's Word, but it's just not found in this particular passage. So Paul is writing here that you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Christ's payment does not only reveal how much we are worth to God. You hear that in a lot of, a lot of songs, you know, that it's how valuable we are. That's why, you know, when Jesus gave his blood, it's because of how valuable. No, it's, it's because of how expensive our sin was. Okay, that's what was happening there. It's not, not how valuable. Now, he does love us. <coughs> he does love us. There's no doubt about that. But to say that his sacrifice, it represents how valuable we are, how, what we're worth, is really a distortion of the truth. 
the cost that it took to save us was because of the horribleness of our sin, not because of the uh, value that we have. And so in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 17, we read, And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. He's describing the culture of this world without God. But you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, referring to the sacrifices at the temple of the Jews there in Jerusalem. Now that Christ's payment has been made for you, you are no longer, you, you no longer own a body, okay, with which to continue sinning. Therefore, you're to use your body only to participate in the glorious display of God's goodness and wisdom and love. You don't, you don't own a body. You don't have permission to take the body that you have been loaned out and sin with it. Okay? That's not what it's for. You have the body that you have in order to participate in God's display of His goodness and His wisdom and His love. In other words, you have a body to glorify God with. That's all. It's not yours for any other reason. And so Paul encourages us to glorify God in your body because you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. It's like that teenager who doesn't own a car, but he's got a girlfriend now, and he wants to go out with her. And his dad says, okay, you can, uh, you can borrow the car, but I don't want you to uh, do anything other than you go to the movie, come home, go out to eat, come home, don't go park somewhere. Okay? Am I dating myself or what? But you just don't, you don't own a body to sin with. You only own a body to glorify God with. And that is not your own. It's God's and He's only loaning it to you during this time in this world. Now there are benefits, and we're going to close with this. There are benefits to fleeing not only this sin, but all sin. And we find this in Paul's letter to Timothy, the second letter to Timothy in chapter 2 and verse 20. I've referred to this verse before, but I want to bring it back to your attention. Paul writes, But in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver. Those would be the ones that you would serve dinner on. Okay? That's, you're in a great house. Now think of Downton Abbey. Okay? You're, in a, you're in a great house. And the, and the servants are coming in with plates and platters, and there's all this wonderful food. And you'll notice that the platters are, are made of silver, maybe even of gold, or at least gold plate. They're beautiful. They are what Paul's calling here vessels of honor. So, and also, he says, of wood and clay. Uh, you'd find the wood and clay vessels in the kitchen, normally, or in other places in the house. He says, some of these are for honor, the gold and the silver, and some are for dishonor, 
the, the wood and the clay. Now there may be some wood and clay dishes that are used in honorable ways, but the analogy seems to be pointing to the idea that we all know that in a great house we've got lots of different vessels. It says, therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter. Now that's an interesting phrase in light of you being saved by grace through faith and not of works, lest anyone should boast, right? He says, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, what's the latter? The latter is from the dishonorable uses. Then he will be a vessel of honor, or for honor. Sanctified, that means set apart for a special purpose, and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. There's no hesitation to use this vessel because it's clean. It's been scrubbed. It's now ready to be put to use in any way the master chooses. Now I want you to stop and think about that for a minute. You are now in God's household. You've been adopted into this great household, the family of God. But you have a choice day by day as to whether or not you will use the liberty that you have under the Lordship of Christ to cleanse yourself of everything that is uh, unprofitable, dishonorable. That's what sanctification is all about. We are sanctified by God's grace. The same grace that saved us also is at work in us to will and to do of his good pleasure. But we now in the household of God have choices to make as to whether we will indulge ourselves in honorable or dishonorable activities. And Paul writes at one point that he wants to be sure that he does not find himself disqualified after having preached the gospel to others, that he himself is not set aside as disqualified. How would that be? If he were to yield to the unprofitable activities that he's describing here. Sexual immorality, all the other things in the list of the sins of the flesh. You can be disqualified. I have a dear friend who's been disqualified. He was a senior pastor. He's now disqualified from that role as a senior pastor. Uh, his marriage, thankfully, by God's grace, has not been broken. He's still married. He still has his six kids, right? But, the, the, but the, the, the price is high. Can he be forgiven? Yes, and he has been forgiven by God. He has been reconciled with his wife by God's grace. But the cost is high. It's so high. And I plead with you, the next time you find yourself tempted to sin, that because of what Jesus said about looking on a person uh, and lusting after, that temptation itself is a sin. Let's, let's stop this idea that the temptation is not a sin. As long as I don't act on it, it's not a sin. Well, then that means fantasizing is not a sin. It's a sin. It's wrong. Under the law, you would be condemned. Now, under God's grace, no longer under the law, it is still unprofitable. It is still a sin. It is a, it is a dis, 
the corruption and the disruption of the goodness and the wisdom of God in your life, I plead with you. Flee. Flee sexual immorality. Flee the temptation. Think upon things in heaven. Draw close to Jesus. Let him satisfy the yearning of your heart. Don't satisfy any yearning by sexual immorality because you'll regret it. It will grieve the heart of God. It will bring his discipline into your life. He still loves you, but the cost will be so high. So flee youthful lust. Flee sexual immorality. Don't yield, not even to the temptation. Don't give in to the temptation to be tempted, but rather run to God. Flee immorality and run to Jesus and let him fulfill the yearning of your soul. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness and we ask your blessing upon this now. Be glorified, we ask, in all that we say and all that we do. May this message today provide support for the fight that we are in against our flesh, against the world, against the devil. And we give you all the praise and all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.